Turn then please with me to our text this morning, which comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as we will be looking at verses 3 through 8. First Thessalonians chapter four verses three through eight. Hear with me then the reading of God's word. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives us His Holy Spirit. Therefore, thus far as the reading of God's Word, what is the will of God for me? This is a question that we probably hear quite often. What is God's will? And the answer, brothers and sisters, is rather simple. It's a rather simple answer. But it's an answer that all too often people don't want to hear. Because whatever that answer is, which we'll get to shortly, whatever the, the answer is to what is the will of God, one thing that we know that it does not include is the one thing that this world loves most. And that is sin. Whatever God's will might be, it is not sin. And this is a great barrier for so many who might consider themselves Christian or who might mentally assent to the Christian faith. They might say, yes, I believe God died. Or, I believe in God. I I believe that God is triune in nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe in the divinity of Christ and that He suffered and died upon the cross and that He is now risen in heaven. But what does it have to do with me having to change my lifestyle? I enjoy after a hard week's work to go out on the weekends and to consume much alcohol with my friends. I enjoy going out and being as sexually promiscuous as I want to be. I enjoy telling, or perhaps maybe not enjoy, you have to, I feel like I have to tell little white lies. Um, Sometimes you just have to. But what does all this matter? If I drink too much or if I'm promiscuous or I tell lies, what does this matter if I'm not harming anyone else? This is what many people say. This is the sentiments of so many that we hear. They want to be Christians while yet maintaining their lifestyle, which is no different from the unbeliever. You see, they want to gain everything, but at the expense of losing nothing. They want to gain eternal life. They want to gain Christ. They want to gain all of the benefits that come from that relationship while maintaining all of their sinful, earthly indulgences that they love so much. 
They don't want to have to lose a thing for that. And we, and I mean we, I mean all of humanity, we love getting things for free, don't we? We love getting things that cost us nothing. Just think about it. When our wives go out to shop on Saturday morning, husbands will usually go that time because they know that's when the, when the free samples are given out at the store. And nobody passes up the free samples at the store as you're walking through the aisles, do you? Of course not. It's free food. Who would turn down free food? You know, we love that which is free. And the sad thing about it is, is we'd also want the Christian life if we could have it for free. But Christ tells us that the Christian life is not free. It will cost you. It will cost you. Turn with me, please, to the, the Gospel of Luke in chapter 14. And we will read what it will cost you as Jesus cautions the crowds as they're following Him around. And He does not want them to be unaware of what it means to follow Him. And so look with me, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33. And hear what Jesus says to the crowds. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great far way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You see, Jesus says, I am warning you I am putting you on notice what it means to be my disciple for all of you who are following me around and are considering it. Jesus doesn't want them to be ignorant. And so He, he gives them these two examples to caution them, to cause them to stop and to think. Do I really want to continue to follow this man? In the first example we are told is of one who builds a tower. And Jesus says it's obvious that before you start building, anyone with an ounce of intelligence will first determine if he has the funds to be able to do it. You don't start building without knowing that you can pay for the materials. And then he turns and he uses the example of a king heading out to war. And he says, no one's so dumb as to just run out and attack the enemy. Especially when this has to do with you losing your very own life in the process. No. What do you do? You plan. Right? You, you set out all the facts and you say, well, 
my opponent has this many, and they have these weapons, how many do I have? And what type of weapons do I have? And are we able to, to stack up against them? Jesus gives us two obvious examples, two easy examples, so that the average person can understand. And then He says, Therefore, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. And the message is clear that Jesus is proclaiming. He says, you must count the cost to follow me. You must count the cost. I want you to know what it is you will be losing, and I want you to know what it is that you'll be gaining, and so you must be willing to renounce all and follow after me if you want to be my disciple. Now after hearing this, if you still decide to follow me, now come. Right? Jesus doesn't want people to follow Him and then 5, 10, 20 years later go, oh, I didn't know I had to part with all my sin. Why didn't anyone tell me this? Right? And So Jesus comes right out and says it. Following me will cost you. The Christian life is not an easy one and no one said it will be. It is a hard and difficult life at some times. It means renouncing your former sinful ways and breaking with sinful, gratuitous practices and giving your whole life unto the service and use of God. And for so many, they hear this and they say, no, thank you. I don't want that. And they walk away. This is what we heard just a few weeks ago in the reading of the law when the, the rich young ruler came up to Jesus and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus reads off the second table of the law. And he says, I've done all this. And Jesus says, what does he say? He says, give all of your money away then, and I'll come and follow him. And what do the rich young ruler say? That's too much. The cost I cannot bear. And he walked away. So many just want to believe in Christ. right? Just believe in him and have him their own way. They think following Christ means just verbally professing His name and then just living just a little bit better than everyone else. But is this the life that we are called to as Christians? This is not the life that Paul has called the Thessalonians to, is it? A life lived a little better than everyone else in society. No, this is not the will for the Christian. So the question is then, what in fact is the will for the Christian? This is the first point this morning that I want to highlight from our text. What does Paul say the will for God for us is? And this is really the theme of all of chapter 4. And that is the will of God for the believers, just what Paul says it is in verse 3. He says, For the will, for you know, uh, for the, this is the will of God, your sanctification. If you're a believer, or if you say you're a believer, the will of God for you is not what you deem it to be. It is not what you have heard in some dream or seen in some vision. It's very simple. It's recorded for us in Scripture. God's will for you is your sanctification. And perhaps that sounds boring to some. Right? It sounds boring. This is why people look for it in every other place. They, they turn inwardly and they want to see, well, what's God's will for me? Oh, let me look inwardly and perhaps I'll figure that out. Or they want to look to, to, to other people. They want to look in the sky. But no, 
It's found in the Scriptures. God says, His will for you is your sanctification. But the problem is, is people just don't like what God has to say. They don't like the fact that we are called to renounce all of our former lusts. And that we are called to a, a pure and holy standard of living. But this is what sanctification is, isn't it? It's holiness. It's a holy life. It's about being set apart as a special people of God. And sanctification described to us by the Puritan Thomas Watson has two parts to it. Sanctification has two parts to it. Thomas Watson says it's the privative and the positive. Right? Sanctification has a privative part and a positive part. Now, privative means the absence or the removal of something. So it's the removing or the casting off of sin. And so sanctification in, in one aspect, in its privative part, is the purging out of sin in the life of the believer. In its positive aspect, sanctification is the refining of the soul or the renewing of the mind. And so Watson likens sanctification to the priests of the Old Covenant. He says the priests were not only washed in the great laver, the laver being the, a, a, wa- a basin of water where they would cleanse themselves in. And so Watson says that sanctification is for the priests was not only in washing in this great laver, but it was also in them being adorned in glorious apparel that they wore. Right? It was being washed and being adorned. And so Thomas Watson says, just like with sanctification, it is not only the washing away of sin, but it is being adorned with purity. It is washing away and being adorned. And so in what way does Paul say to the saints specifically that this holiness is to be adorned and the sin is to be purged out in them? Well, he says this holiness is to be adorned in the exercise of sexual purity. This is what he says in verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of the lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress his brother and wrong him in this manner. Paul says that there is nothing more contrary to holiness than the defilement of one's body. There is nothing more contrary to holiness than defiling your body. And isn't this the overwhelming sin of this world? This was probably an overwhelming sin even amongst us prior to conversion. Perhaps it still dwells in some post-conversion. But this world seeks to normalize it. This world abounds in the sexual sin. And it seems to be more prominent than ever though, doesn't it? But perhaps that's because now there is no more shame. There was always sexual sin, wasn't there? But before, people felt shame about it. They didn't want their their neighbor to know all their indiscretions. But today, people are so proud about it. They, They tweet about it and Facebook it and are out and open about it. There is no more shame in this world over sexual sin. Right? Being promiscuous and having relations with as many people as possible is something 
This seems to be the goal now in our society. And then people wonder why there are so many single mothers. Why abortion rates are so high. Why STDs in this nation are going up so, so high. I just read this article on Yahoo two days ago about how these sexually transmitted disease just within the last five years has multiplied exponentially. And as I read through it, I read all the excuses why. You know, there's not enough medical facilities for people to get to. There's not enough you know, free protection for people to have. And as I'm, as I'm reading and I'm looking at the solutions they have for, for the transmission of these STDs, I'm, I'm looking for, how about don't have sex outside of marriage? But that didn't seem to be in the article. That didn't seem to be an option for them. Yet, not only is this outward act what Paul has in mind. Paul says the Christian, as the Christians, we are to master our own bodies. But also we are to master our own minds and our own hearts. As a, this is where our, our bodies act, uh, uh, our body's actions proceed forth out of what is in our hearts and in our minds. This is why Paul says we are not to be controlled by the passion of lust. It is that burning lust within people which is the catalyst for then our actions. It is those sinful thoughts, that sinful yearning for these things that then produce the sinful actions in our life. And so Paul says we are to be controlling that. So as Christians, we are not only to be controlling though that physical act, but all forms of impurity. right? Action, thought, right? our affections. And so if we know that actions spring forth from what is conceived in heart and mind, we must be seeking as Christians to be informing our heart and our mind. We are to be sanctifying them so that our external actions reflect that internal holiness that we have. Remember, if you're a Christian, brothers and sisters, we have been freed from sin. Sin isn't to have mastery over us any longer. We are no longer slaves. This it characterizes the life of the unbeliever. They're the ones who are, are not to be able to control themselves, not the Christian. And why are we told that the unbeliever can't control themselves? What does Paul say? Paul says because they do not have knowledge of God. Sure, people go around saying, yeah, I know, I know God, I, I know Jesus. But if that knowledge does not drastically change your heart, then that knowledge that you have is not true in saving knowledge. If that knowledge you have does not totally reshape your inclinations and your desires, if that knowledge you have does not cause you to hate that sin you once did and want to pursue holiness of life, then that that is not true in saving knowledge. You see, knowledge of God Produced by the Holy Spirit, Paul is saying, is necessary for us to be able to show restraint. It is that knowledge of the true and living God and what He desires of us and what He has called us that governs how we are to live our lives. And without that knowledge, like the ungodly, immoral world, we go about right, exercising ourselves in sexual impurity. And this is what the saints in Thessalonica are dealing with. 
They're Greeks who worship pagan deities all around them who are engaging in egregiously immoral sexual lifestyle. But what does Paul say to the Greek converts? Paul tells them, just like you have made a break with those idolatrous worship practices, remember he tells them that in in chapter 1, they made a break with those idolatrous worship practices, they are also to make a break with all forms of idolatry which include sexual immorality. It is not just stop worshiping those false idols, but stop all forms of idolatry. And it's interesting that Paul many times in Scripture likens sexual immorality to idolatry. One of the places he does this is in Romans chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, where he says, Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their heart, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator. You see, every time you engage in sexual immorality, you are committing idolatry. That is what Paul is saying. You are serving yourself. You are making yourself the object of pleasure when it is who we are to be pleasing. It is God we ought to please. This is what Paul just told us last week in, in verses 1 and 2. He says, Just as you receive from us how you are to walk and please God, do so more and more. We are not to be seeking out to please ourselves, but God. And so when we replace God with ourselves, we are committing idolatry just like the pagans. We are no different, no better. And we are so willing to serve ourselves that Paul has to remind us why we have been sanctified, why we have been uh, set apart by God, what His will for us is. Because by nature, we are averse to holy living and purity. We are like brute beasts so often. We just want to squeeze every ounce of gratification that we can find out of one another. But this is not God's intention for marriage, is it? Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. Paul says it would be great if you didn't have this desire to be in this relationship with a woman, because then, you could spend all of your time in service to God. You wouldn't be uh, worried about those other things. But Paul also says that instead of being sexually immoral, God has instituted this ordinance of, of marriage. And in marriage, and only in marriage, can these relationships be exercised. If you can't be celibate, there's nothing wrong with being intimate within this union of marriage. This is God's design. Man and woman being intimate within the bounds of marriage. Yet any other expression outside of marriage is sexually immoral and forbidden by God. The Christian has two options given to us by God. It is celibacy or it is marriage. There is no in-between. Those are the only two options. There is no other option. And so, brothers and sisters, as believers who believe this, 
We aren't to be polluting ourselves and defiling ourselves knowing that this is the will of God for us. And so we ought to be looking at ourselves more in line with the manner in which Calvin describes. He says in his commentary on this text, In renouncing the world and clearing ourselves from the pollutions of the flesh, we offer ourselves to God as if in sacrifice, for nothing can be offered to Him but what is pure and holy. See, Calvin says we ought to be looking at ourselves as a holy offering unto God. That's how we are to be living, as sacrifices here on earth. And remembering that what? Only a pure and holy sacrifice can have any relationship with God. Nothing pleases God that is not pure and holy. This is why that instruction given to the, the priest in the Old Covenant was so stringent and so meticulous. When it talked about you know, what could be offered to God and how and in what manner it was to be offered. Because nothing could be offered to God that was not clean, pure, and holy, and undefiled. Nothing is acceptable before God in that way. And nothing that is not holy cannot be in the presence of God without being utterly consumed. And so we as believers in Christ, we need to be pursuing holiness, making our life that spiritual sacrifice to God, knowing that without doing so, you will not be in the presence of God. For nothing that is not holy will be in the presence of God. Only complete and total holiness can dwell with God. Nothing else. And so we must continue in the sanctified life. We must abandon at all costs our former life of sin, especially sexual immorality. As our bodies belong to God. This world says our bodies belong to ourself. But that is nothing more than idolatry. We are God's instruments. And so we are not to defile ourselves. This is part of that, that cost that Christ spoke of. The cost of following Him means giving up our will and subjugating ourselves to the will of our Father in Heaven. Because what is the warning that Paul gives to those who think that they can follow Christ, that they can assemble with the saints and still go along defiling themselves? Well, Paul says in verse 6, I want you to know that the Lord is the avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, and solemnly warn you. Here's that second point I want to highlight from our text this morning. And that is that all sexual sin, all sexual sin will not go unpunished. All sexual sin will not go unpunished. As a rejection of Paul's command here, we are told is not a rejection just upon some human directive but it's a rejection of the very Holy Spirit who authored and penned Holy Scriptures. And if it's a rejection of the Holy Spirit, then it's, a, then it's a rejection of God Himself. And we are told, what is to happen to such a person? Well, we have an example of this, this type of grave, immoral sexual sin in Scripture, don't we? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, do you recall? Where we're told that this young man is partaking in the sexual sin with his own father's wife. And what does Paul say? This isn't even named amongst the pagans. The, the pagans don't even do that. And what does Paul say we, that should be done to this man? 
He says you, you should remove this man from the assembly of God. And then in verse 9, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. But in verse 12 he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul says that this type of behavior belongs to the ungodly, not the godly. The congregation of the Lord is to consist only of holiness. No impurity is to exist amongst us. So when you bring that sin into this church, you're defiling God's church. You're corrupting God's people. You're polluting His holy sanctuary. And God tells us we are to have no communion with such people. You are to purge that type of evil from your midst. They do not belong worshiping with God's people. I mean, we we ought to expect this, shouldn't we, from the outside world. This is why Paul says, I'm not talking about stop associating with the immoral of the world. These are the people that we are supposed to be interacting with, evangelizing. Right? How are they to hear the gospel if we stop associating with them? But these aren't the type of people that we are to be worshiping with. We evangelize with them. We are to be worshiping with God's holy people, set apart. And so church discipline is one aspect that God deals with the sexually immoral. But that is not the only manner in which God will deal with the sexually immoral. Because there is a final and ultimate way that this sin is dealt with in the heart of the impenitent. And that is eternal destruction. For in one chapter later, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. And that covers the the whole gamut of sexual sin, doesn't it? Heterosexual sin and homosexual sin alike. Because both are heinous and grievous sins in the eyes of God. And damnable in His sight. And so do we see the seriousness of the violation of all sorts of sexual impurity, brothers and sisters? It isn't, well, everyone else does it. You know, it's acceptable to this world. And so God will overlook that sin. No. It's if this is the practice of your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when Christ returns, you will not be an everlasting life with Him, but rather you will be eternally separated in hell. It is that heavy, that important of a matter, brothers and sisters. And so the penalty is so great because the offense is so great. You say, well, all it is 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 gratifying some sexual desire. Is it really that big of a deal? Yes, it is. The offense is so great because the offense is a spit in the face of God. It is, it is a rejection of God. The God who created you and I. The God who ordained marriage. Who gave it its meaning and its purpose. 
who instituted with Adam and Eve, who told us what, it's in, what His intention for it was, who defined it as being one man and one woman, leaving father and mother, cleaving to one another for life. It is this institution that Jesus Himself affirms in Matthew chapter 19. Remember over the discussion of divorce. And Jesus says what? You have heard it said that God created the male and female. And son is to leave mother and father and cleave to wife. And the two are to become one. So that whatever God has joined together, let no man separate. This is God's intention for this type of relationship. To be within the marriage bounds. And so when we violate these commands given to us by God, what we are really doing is trampling over this great union that He has ordained and established. They're trampling over it. This union which pictures the very union of Christ and His church. And yet, you might say, well, this temptation abounds amongst around us so often. You know, we turn on the television set, we go outside, we see all of this temptation around us constantly. How can we ever overcome? And the answer then is found in verse 7 and 8. And this is our third and final point that we want to highlight this, this morning. Paul says this, For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God who gives us His Holy Spirit to you. And so, brothers and sisters, the reason that the Christian must be fighting against such sin and can flee when this temptation arises is because we are told this is what Paul this is what God has called us to and this is the reason God has enabled us to through the giving of his holy spirit you see you say how can I, we ever not fall into such sin Paul says to you that you can because this is what you have been called to and God has given you the means to flee such sin and temptation if you, have, if you are a Christian, you have been called to this holy life. This is the will of God for you. Sexual purity, holiness, a life distinct from the ungodly who want to take whoever they can to find meaningless and self-destruction, momentary pleasure. And Paul is saying that in doing this, that is taking what is not yours. God has given to husband-wife and to wife-husband for the fulfilling of such relations. And outside of this context is going outside the will of God. And so I ask, if you engage in such sin, how can you ever have any assurance that God's grace is in your life? If you engage in such, in such sin, how can you ever be assured that you are a child of God? Because the reason that we seek to please God, the reason that we obey His commands and we serve His will is because He has given us His Holy Spirit. And He causes us to obey. This is how we know that we are His, if we obey. Because we only obey if we have the Spirit. And so if you have a, a heart to serve God and obey His will, right, this should be the Christian's comfort. This is how you should know that you can flee this type of sin and temptation. 
To serve yourself demonstrates that you do not have the Spirit. And that should bring you no comfort at all. But for the godly, He has given us a Spirit who works holiness holiness in us and He will not fail. As the Spirit is the one who renews our minds, purifies our hearts, grants to us peace of conscience, causes us to walk in all His ways. We serve a God who not only calls us to a holy standard of living, but enables us to live a holy life. And so, brothers and sisters, when you feel that temptation, when you see that temptation all around you, and you feel it in closing in upon you, God is our confidence that we can flee that sin. His power, His might is sufficient for us in the Christian life. And so matter, no matter what one sin might be, whether it be sexual sin or, or any other sin, we must know though as believers that God has died for us and He has nailed that sin to the cross for all those who believe. And we have been forgiven those sins. Yet evidence that we have true and saving faith is that we will now listen to His authority, obey His will, live a life that is pleasing to God, walking in His ways, a holy and sanctified life, a life that flees sexual immorality. And we know that we can overcome that sin because Christ has overcome sin for us. Christ is victorious over sin. He has defeated sin death and the devil. And so, brothers and sisters, it no longer can have dominion over us. And so, if we are in Christ, we simply need to turn to God when we feel temptation rearing its ugly head. Getting on our knees, asking God for all the grace that we need to overcome. Asking God daily, continually, that He would continually be purifying our hearts, purifying our minds, causing us more and more to walk in His ways. Yet also we must, as believers, be pursuing a holy life, knowing that sanctification is God's will for you and I. Which means that if we are to be disciples of God, we must renounce sin and adorn ourselves with the righteousness which comes alone through faith in Christ. Please, if you will, bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this day. We thank You for the truthfulness of Your Word. We thank You, Father, that You have given us the Spirit to understand Your Word, to discern what Your will for us is in this life. And so, Father, we ask that You would continue to teach us Your will, that You would continue to conform us to the image of Your Son through sanctification. And Father, we pray that You would grant to us a greater hatred for our sin and a greater love for that holy living which you have called us to. And so, Father, we come before you this day and we ask all these things in Christ's name we pray. Amen.